When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Greetings, everyone. This is Brian Reisman, entertainment journalist and author in New York, welcoming you to the inaugural episode of Side Jams. For over 20 years, I've interviewed movie stars, rock stars, and best-selling authors, and frequently we've ended up veering into areas outside of what they're promoting. They have hobbies and other passions that really inspire them, and I usually don't have enough space to delve deeply into those. So I decided to create a whole podcast series devoted to people's pursuits outside of their main gigs. In other words, their side jams. My first guest is Roger Craig Smith, a well-known voice actor who for the last decade has portrayed Chris Redfield in the Resident Evil and Marvel vs. Capcom video game series. He has also played many different characters in animation and video games, including Captain America, Sonic the Hedgehog, and Kylo Ren. He frequently portrays the Dark Knight, including voicing him in last year's Batman Ninja anime. Beyond his work behind the mic, Roger likes to get behind the telescope, as he's an avid fan of astronomy, rocketry, and space travel. We chatted via Skype for this episode, so without any further ado, Let's blast off into the debut of Side Jams. Greetings, everyone. This is Brian Reisman, and this is the inaugural podcast of Side Jams. And we're going to be speaking today with Roger Craig Smith, who is, uh, well, he's, he's many people. He's Batman, he's Captain America, he's Sonic the Hedgehog, he's a man of multiple talents and multiple personalities. <laughs> That's pretty accurate, the multiple personality thing. And you get paid for it, which is nice. Exactly. We say that to ourselves all the time, all of my personalities. You know, our previous interview that we did for The Aquarian a few months ago was one of the inspirations for this podcast, because as we were talking about earlier, people say, I should do a movie podcast or a music podcast, but, you know, there's so many of those, and I, I often discover when I'm interviewing uh, various talented artists that they have other interests outside of their main gig and something that they don't get to talk about very much. You're clearly passionate about astronomy, uh, rocketry, and space exploration. Absolutely. Were you a photographer in junior college when you took the initial astronomy course, or was that no. something that came after? Yeah, no, that came afterwards. That was uh, the photography thing just came about as a result of, of having a little bit of success in life and me kind of going, I've always, I mean, I remember in high school, I took a, photo a photography course, like an intro t to photography with the dark rooms and the exposing of film and all that kind of stuff, developing a film, I should say. And it was, uh, you know, I, and I loved it. I, I liked the sort of creative aspect of that form of storytelling, if you will. But then, you know, I couldn't afford any sort of electronics. And then finally, the, the career kind of started kicking in. And I thought I could probably buy like an actual camera camera and learn how to do 
you know, DSLR digital photography today. And it, and it kind of spurred, spurred a sort of like, oh, I like this stuff. I like, I like the, the, the sort of planning and the creative element and the, you know, the scientific element. And then that went into, uh, I remember taking a junior college astronomy course and going, I liked astronomy. I wonder if I could buy a telescope today. And I got, you know, a basic intro introductory telescope. And then I was like, I wonder if you can connect a camera to the telescope. And then that was <laughs> the Pandora's box and the rabbit hole was opened and it was all uh, downhill from there. So now you were in junior college. This was before Chapman University. Correct. Yes. I was on about the 10 year to 12 year plan for uh, for a higher education, if you will. Well, whatever works. Yeah, exactly. Hey, as long as you get there. It's interesting, too, because the first experience I think you had stargazing, you were out there for several hours and you realized you didn't really see very much, but you were still mesmerized by what was up there. Oh, absolutely. I, I uh, the, the girlfriend at the time was just like, once I started down that, that hobby of like, I think I want to go outside and set up the telescope. And she's like, oh, so I'm going to lose you for the rest of the night. And it was like, yeah, because <laughs> all of a sudden it was like, and I think I had to work the next day when I first put it out there. And, you know, by the time, especially when you're learning, it takes a while to kind of get stuff set up and that kind of thing. And by the time I was actually figuring out how to track and and start getting focus and all that kind of stuff, pretty soon I'm looking down at my watch and I'm like, it's 2.45 in the morning. I got to go to bed um, because I was just losing myself. You could literally just start scanning the skies and going, there are stars, especially when you start looking through a telescope, even in light polluted skies or even just a pair of binoculars that, that you know, what you look up and see with the naked eye really isn't there and then you look through this you know the eyepiece on a telescope or suddenly you start seeing you know clouds and things that you you've come to find are actually nebulae or that kind of thing and you just start going what all this stuff is out there that that we just are robbed our poor little human vision you know uh, robs us of that and that was the next sort of thing that 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 really expanded the the sort of um available you know, visual targets out there is understanding that the cameras, because they can scoop in so much more light than our eyeballs can, suddenly you, you can see things that, that you don't even see at all. That's where the, the you know, the, the go-to and the the aligned telescopes and all that kind of stuff where you tell it, hey, take me to this galaxy that, you know, even when you look through the eyepiece, you don't see anything there. You right. fire off a camera, all of a sudden there's this galaxy appearing on the screen on your camera because you took a two-minute exposure and suddenly the light was there. All the all that stuff. And you will spend hour after hour. And even when I'm doing the imaging and just letting the camera do its work, I'm still sitting out there, you know, crack a beer and sit back and just watch satellites or see an owl fly by. You know, you just find yourself mesmerized still. That's not a way to romance the ladies. Just just saying. No, it's really not. I mean, it's so you, I've had so many people go like, are you going out with people and do that? I was like, I've come to find it's a little easier just to do this by yourself because it's really hard to find somebody who wants to go you know, bundle up, freeze, get bitten by bugs or get a little spooked by, you know, the stuff that's that's stirring in the night. <laughs> and I've <laughs> I've literally been on uh, on my property up in uh, Tehachapi and had like, you know, elk that are like, you know, in the rut sort of fighting each other about 100 feet away from me. And I'm just laughing, hearing elk bugling and, you know, the crunch of like antlers, you know, crushing together. And, you know, I'm just out there with my telescope and a beer and you know, like just kind of going, yeah, this isn't for everybody. And most especially, I don't think most women would not find that to be a very romantic uh, outing. Like, hey, you want to go uh, just sit outside and freeze and stare at stuff for a while? <laughs> be creepy people in the night? You know, it's funny as a writer, I kind of, I I relate to that. I mean, I, I spend, you know, a decent amount of time with my girlfriend, but by the same token, there are times I like to be in my place. Like I, I'm a movie buff. I love comic books. I'm albums. I mean, I, I write about art, so I'm always surrounded by it. I'm always trying to catch up. Yeah. There's times that I want to be really social and I go out to parties and I go out to shows. I mean, it's 
sometimes I want people to people just leave me the hell alone. Yeah. <laughs> I want to like have some solitude, and I think sometimes creative people are like that. And I think the best bit of advice I got from a a, a teacher in well, she gave us a class. It was class advice when I was at NYU in a sophomore level film class. She said, if you want to be a writer, you better pre- be prepared to spend a lot of time alone. Oh, absolutely. That, that's what you're going to be doing. Yeah, screenwriting was the same thing. I mean, it was. It, I, I, I technically still have a literary agent that uh, every now and then will will hit me up and go, have you written anything? You know, like every three years, he kind of checks in, and I say no. And right now, it really and truly is about time. There's, there's so much management involved with the sort of voice acting career that I've find myself in the midst of that to, to then think about going home and I loved writing at night. And so to think that I, I can't stay up that late, I'm up every day at 5am and I'm trying to go to bed by 930 as best I can. And when am I going to, when am I going to write in there? Uh, and rest is everything for the voice and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's a, uh, it, it, but I do miss those times where it was like, I don't know the the problem solving, the figuring out the rush of, Oh, I broke through this little bit of writer's block and now I've got all these ideas that are flowing and, Yes, and really and truly just getting comfortable with ourselves as individuals in those quiet moments. That's not a we're I know we're social animals by design, but but the solitude and the perspective that can open up in your life when you start to kind of like know yourself and know your thoughts and observe yourself and examine yourself in not in that way. But, uh, you know, but examine the mind and, you know, be amused by where all these influences and thoughts and behaviors and, you know, the inner monologue and the inner broadcast radio station, all that stuff like that. That's it can be uncomfortable at first for a lot of folks. And yet it's so gratifying when you start kind of peeling back the layers of your own brain and getting comfortable with that. But there is a balance like there are there are times where it's like, man, I just got to go out and, and hang out with some folks and listen to some other people think. And if you're going to bed at 930, uh, when do you get the stargazing in? Well, that's that's usually like the weekend. So I, I try to I try to plan um, where if in a perfect world, I can take like a Friday afternoon off. And and I I mean, I literally plan out, you know, times to go either travel or get outside of the, the light pollution uh, over new, what I would call like a new moon weekend. New moons don't always occur like on the weekend, but but closest to the new moon when there's very little moonlight to deal with is is the ideal time to either photograph the Milky Way in the summer or to do actual astrophotography with the camera and the telescope, you know, in the winter months, that kind of thing, which is ideal because it's colder temperatures and clearer skies when it is cold and all that kind of stuff. And less ground heat and less temperature sensors on the, the, the camera sensor, you know, they, they like to be nice and cold and all that. So I try to plan time to say, all right, so Friday and Saturday are my good imaging nights. And then Sunday is when I come back home and catch up on the sleep and go right back to work, you know, up at 5 a.m. on Monday. Um, and the way I figured out is usually by around 2 a.m. I'm so exhausted that I'm, I'm making dumb decisions when I'm out there. So I, I don't, I don't stay up all night, but I like doing the time-lapse photography because you can set it up get it firing off and do a whole night's worth of time lapse and then just wake up, you know, early in the morning, go grab your camera, bring it back inside. Or, you know, when I tow with my trailer, I'll put my camera up on top of the trailer um, before right. going to bed and let it fire off all night as long as it's not keeping me up kind of thing. And, you know, wake up early and go pull it off the top of the trailer and bring it inside and download the images. You know, it's, it's interesting you sent me a couple photos. Uh, one of them was uh, the Milky Way over a dock on Little Payette. Yeah, Little Little Payette, uh, yeah, Little Payette uh, Lake. And then high, and then another one of high, on Highway 21 near Boise, Idaho. Yep. So this, is uh, Idaho one of your preferred spots then? 
Yeah, I bought a place up there in and back in 2011, and the the sort of dream is to eventually find myself as I'm getting older, being able to what I call just sort of pull the parachute and go up and start to to kind of downsize my life and and be there, uh, and ideally still working and doing voiceovers and coming into the LA area when needed but maybe doing a lot of more of the remote retail narration promos, things that you can do from home, from your home studio. And, uh, and to be, I, I just have in my later years here, uh, not that I'd consider myself old, but, but just, <laughs> uh, you know, in my, in my forties, it's, uh, and it really started, you know, like around the mid thirties, just kind of going, I really do like being outdoors and doing active things. And I'd like to kind of have, you know, my fifties and sixties be active and outside and, and, and sort of experiencing the world in a little bit more of a present way than what my industry allows. Uh, cause you're either, you're either worried about the very next gig so you're either constantly focused on the future or you're you're thinking too much about your past and decisions you made back then and like, man, oh, man, I hope people like that project that I did. And, ah, I was so bad in that. I should have done different choices, you know, yeah. as opposed to you get outside and you just go for a hike or go for a mountain bike ride or go sit on a kayak or whatever it might be. And you're just there. You're living in those moments. And so I figure I'm, I've been investing in myself in what I would like to think is a, a slower pace and a much more present lifestyle hopefully starting around 45, around the age of 45, which is uh, around 2020 for me to try to get in and start start doing that stuff. So we'll, we'll see. But that's so I do find myself going away to Idaho a lot um, mm. just because I have a place there. So it's easy to hop on a Southwest flight, be there in a few hours. And I'm, you know, I was just there this past weekend and I hiked five miles all three days that I was there and went and ate tacos and got good beer and met with some good friends that are up there. And, you know, it's a it's a nice slow pace to life where you can actually go do all that stuff and not worry about your car getting broken into or sitting in three hours of traffic, you know, to get to the the place or that kind of thing. So you can hear my love for LA, can't you? But, uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting. Like I, I live near New York City. I love it at the same time. You know, it, there's a good balance to find. I mean, people who live in New York City all the time obviously want to escape. Uh, I mean, even when I lived in LA, like in West LA many, many moons ago, it was, it was the same. We're living in Hollywood. It was the same thing. And also for, for astronomy, LA and New York aren't great. I mean, I remember taking an astronomy class at NYU and we went on the top of a 12 or 13 story building and you still couldn't see anything. I mean, yeah. you were lucky to see a star. Yeah, exactly. It's like, look up in the sky, folks. There's five stars and four of them are actually planets. <laughs> I imagine LA is not much better. No, it's not. I've lucked out though. Like I'm, I'm based in Chatsworth and for whatever reason, this little pocket that I'm in is, even though I'm surrounded by homes and businesses and all that kind of stuff, but we are sort of north enough and there's a bunch of hills all around where I'm at. So they kind of, you know, there's not as much development on those hillsides. So believe it or not, I can see, you know, I can, I've, I've got enough to see the North Star, to see Polaris, to be able to to um to sort of align a telescope properly and I can do some imaging. I've I've imaged the uh, the Orion Nebula from my backyard here in Chatsworth and it's not ideal but you can get those things. You can even see a little bit with the imaging you can see a little bit of the uh, Andromeda galaxy and stuff like that. So I mean there's I'm ironically I've got more stars where I'm at than some of my friends who are down say closer to like Burbank or right, you know, downtown L.A., you can forget about it. The view of L.A. when you're uh, up in Mulholland Drive is great, but uh, the stars are the city lights, basically. Mm-hmm. It's what's down on the ground. Yeah, and it's, it's I'm, look, all things for, for everyone. And there's a lot of people that, you know, don't want to go sit in a trailer or go camping or, you know, get a little dirty or be out in the middle of the night or that kind of thing. They like their creature comforts, and I, I get it. I mean, I've talked to, to people who just go, why did you buy a house in Iowa? Like Idaho, yeah, Ohio, no, Idaho. Exactly, why did you do that? Like, there's nothing there. 
And then you ask them if they've ever been there, and they say, well, no, but I mean, what could be there? If I've never been there, it must not be worth going to. And uh, <laughs> and it's like, you know, and I get that. I, I talked to a guy out in New York. We were out there for um, the Batman Ninja premiere, and and one of the guys out there was just like, yeah, I can't. He goes, I, I, if I, he goes, I tried camping, and it was so quiet, I couldn't go to sleep. He says, I need, because I've been a city guy my whole life. I need that din. I need to hear the 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 livelihood of all this kind of stuff that's going on out there and he's like yeah the crickets chirping or wind through the trees he was like it's way too quiet and I just thought it was funny because for him he's like no man that ain't that ain't me at all I'm gonna live and die in in New York City and be just fine I said yeah and it's like that's my nightmare I love visiting and you know there's a lot to be said for great cuisine and a, and a sure and just the the sheer sort of like human circus that's going on and the the, the you know to participate and dip your toes in it is great but i need i need to just kind of be you know i'm going to put my butt down in some dirt and kind of just sit here and and just chill with pants on that sounds weird the way i said it but you know i am clothed i should specify when i'm putting my butt down in the dirt uh, <laughs> yes we are clothed during this podcast yes exactly yes well you might be i mean it's it's audio so you know if that's their thing now what's what's the coolest thing you've actually seen Coolest thing I've seen, man, I've seen some crazy stuff while I'm out there. The ISS kind of passing overhead never gets old. I mean, I've, I've, I've set like, there's all these great little apps, like things like ISS Spotter is the one that I use. And there's all these different little apps that'll help you go out and look for the International Space Station when it's in your area. Um, okay. So I've gone out and watched that a number of times. Coolest thing I've seen, I think there's, there's a particular, what they call like a dead satellite. And it's kind of creepy. It's like these these satellites that, you know, eventually these countries lose communication. There's a there's a planned operational lifespan for a lot of these things. Right. And unfortunately, uh, I think it was in like 1994, they finally started saying, hey, guys, we have to figure out what, you know, we can't just leave these things in a certain orbit. So the world community got together in terms of the scientific community and said, like, we have to make sure that at the end of the planned sort of like operational life of these satellites that we either put them in a much higher orbit to where they're not going to be an issue or we let them descend but we have to have an, enough fuel on board to let them descend and burn up in the atmosphere okay and so prior to i think 94 um and it still happens even now when there's a glitch in the you know if we lose communication um but there's uh there's dead satellites that are up there that kind of just tumble and they reflect light um in a very different way than an average satellite they sort of flash and blink but not in a consistent way, like a satellite that's properly sort of spinning or rotating and catching the sun's light and reflecting it down in sort of a pattern. They will do these weird things, and I've seen a few um, in the in the middle of the night that just do this weird. They call them flares. Um, uh, right. They'll they'll call it. There's a lot of uh, the Iridium communication satellites have a satellite or I say a uh, uh, solar panel on them that's about the size of a common household door. And they, they literally, there's a, I think it's called um, Iridium iridium Flare, might even just be called Iridium Flares. This is an app that'll let you know if there's going to be these flares occurring in your area. And what it looks like is just like a, like a very short, if you've ever seen the space station pass overhead, it's like a very short pass, but it happens in this one tiny portion of the sky, and it looks like a dim little star that's moving slowly, and then all of a sudden it gets really bright for about you know, a quarter of a second and then it goes right back to being dim and then it just goes away and it, and it moves about, you know, by the mind's eye, if you were looking up, it'd be, it moved in about two or three inches of the sky. And, uh, and that's like, that's like a fully functional Iridium satellite flare, but these dead satellites do these weird patterns and flashes. And every now and then you'll just see one that just is like stuck in one spot of the sky 
and it's tumbling and you you begin to get this sense of like, man, it's sort of weird to think we put that up there. Our governments, our our scientists, our you know, human beings put these things up there and they're just they're just dead. They're just kinda you know, hovering around up there. I've never seen a UFO or an alien or anything like that. But you see weird things like that. It makes you just kind of go, huh, that's a, it's a weird thing to think that there's just, there's this little chunk of humanity that people had their hands on that's just, it's no longer doing what it was intended to do, but it's it's right there. And in supposedly about 150 years, the Earth will, you know, finally pull it back in or not, or, you know, it's getting so messy up there. We're really deeply concerned about all of the, uh, uh, I forget that it's, it's called a cascade, I think, where it's like if two if two of these things going 18,000 miles an hour in the opposite direction of one another uh, collide, it's just it's so many millions of pieces of debris that then get spread out that it just begins this whole other process of all the other targets that start getting hit yeah. by debris and it becomes this mess. It's a problem up there. So it's weird when you see a dead satellite. That's probably it for me. Camera-wise, what do you shoot with? What kind of telescope do you have? And how much does it really cost to get into this kind of a hobby? So like any hobby, it's going to be that there's entry-level stuff and then there's more advanced stuff. And I, w- I would argue that I'm barely intermediate at this as it is. Um, but I started off with a very, very cheap, I think it was maybe $200 telescope um, that was all manual. And it's like, you know, it's uh, it was just manual knobs to, to control how it tracked across the sky and that kind of thing. Um but, you know, and the the camera equipment that I use now is primarily DSLR cameras. Canon, I'm a Canon guy. I've used a Canon 60 and a 60 Mark II and a 70 um, forever uh, for, for shooting this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because the difference between, like, nightscapes, which is where you're using just a camera not connected to a telescope and, like, a wide-angle lens to try to get as much of the sky and the foreground as possible, uh-huh. and then actual astrophotography they would they would determine is usually there's no foreground images, there's nothing in front of the camera, it's just the sky, and astrophotography has a scientific element to it, meaning you can see discernible targets like, oh, that's clearly this particular star, that kind of thing, so scientists can look at your images and say, oh, well, that's interesting, what day was this shot on, or, you know, how long was your exposure, and all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, now I've graduated to, and I probably won't graduate much beyond this, um, but a, a Celestron, uh, Celestron uh, no, sorry, what is it? A Medno, Celestron 11-inch Edge HD um, telescope. So it's a 11-inch diameter. And uh, and it's a, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a big honker. Uh, you know, I'm only five foot five, so I have to overcompensate and get stuff that's, you know, much bigger than I am. Naturally. Um, yeah, naturally. Yeah, it's <laughs> what'd you call me? <laughs> um, and uh, so I so I connect. Um, then, then the neat thing about that particular telescope, if anybody was sort of photographically minded, would know that like f stops is like uh, basically the uh, uh, how much light can be. You know, we we call it like an f stop, and the lower the number, the more light that's going to be scooped in um, from the. I'm I'm. That's not a. Why well, it's not a diaphragm? What am I talking about? Um, cannot believe I'm blanking on the the term for it right now, but. Um, Basically, uh, the telescope itself would have, if it was a camera lens, it would have an f-stop in its native environment of f10. So to get certain targets that are way out there and very dim and don't have a lot of light coming in, you got you to open up the iris a lot more. Exactly, the iris. Thank you. You would have to exactly. So with a telescope, you can't really open up an iris. It's just sort of a fixed, you know, um, f-stop. But this particular telescope, uh, because it has a primary mirror and a secondary mirror. You can remove the secondary mirror and attach the camera to the what is effectively the front of the telescope, and it drops that f-stop 
um, natively from F10 to F2. So suddenly you now scoop in a lot more light and what would have been like a four minute exposure can drop down to like a 30 minute or a 30 second exposure and still get the same amount of light and quality and all that stuff. So it's just a great telescope for getting some of the deep sky objects. Um, and but yeah, I mean, I know people who have invested tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into this hobby over the course of their lives with guys that build their own little observatory in their backyard with a dome and it retracts and it moves around. And these there's actually um, entire communities that are that are surrounded around the the hobby of astronomy and um, be, you know, backyard astronomy. There's also now a growing trend in you go to a mountaintop where somebody owns the property. They've put down all these um, cement platforms, very level, very stable, very strong, secure. You put in your dome, your telescope, you you hardwire it into the Ethernet you know system that they've got. Then you go back to your house 150 miles away, get on your you know computer and power up your telescope, open up the dome. And you just pay them a monthly rental fee for the infrastructure that they have up there so that you can have a remote observatory without having to own property or do that. So there's there's a lot of ways to do it wow. with different sort of expense levels. But it's it's just how much do you want to spend is really, truly the answer. Because, you know, these things can go, I mean, just insane amounts of money if you really start getting into it. Um, and this is just, you know, like I said, from the backyard astronomy side of things. There, there are people with, I guarantee you, six-figure rigs that are, you know, that are out there doing stuff um, because the technology has finally become available to us. So, yeah, it's, you know, but really and truly, I, I just encourage people, like, get a good pair of binoculars and go to a dark sky site and get yourself, like, a, a great, like, lounging chair, the one that kind of, like, lays back. And you can see a ton of stuff with just a good pair of binoculars and dark skies. You can see, like, the Orion Nebula in the winter is an awesome thing to stare at because it's just this bluish-gray cloud that you can start to kind of pick up a little bit of red and purple in it, you know, with the naked eye if you've been out long enough. And there's a lot of targets that you can see with the naked eye. You don't need to invest in a telescope. You're also interested in space travel and rocketry. So did that come after your interest in astronomy? Did it kind of blossom from that? I think so. But I think I always, like, as a little kid, I was definitely, like, a, a big fan of, like, uh, like uh, airplanes and, and fighter jets and all that kind of stuff. I was a total aviation buff as a little kid. Um and I think for a brief period of time, I think uh, at around like age 13, I would have loved to have, you know, entertained the idea of becoming a pilot. Um, but again, I was a horrible student. And once I started looking into like what goes into like the training and all that stuff, these concepts seem so far, you know, outside of my realm. I think I just sort of gave up on that and just like looking at, you know, and going to air shows and that kind of thing. Um, but the, you know, it, it's a little different now that I'm older to kind of appreciate the the sort of like the blend, the the audacity of the human spirit to sort of like attempt to tame, you know, things like explosive energy and then not only tame it, but put it into a, you know, a tube and then shoot it as one continuous controlled explosion at the back end of it so that we can get off this earth and go look at stuff with these super delicate instruments that, you know, that have to take this this crazy ride, including the fragile human beings that when they go, they sit on top of this enormous bomb uh, you know, and get ourselves off the planet. So all all that stuff kind of started to have, pardon the pun, a lot more gravity, you know, as I got older and could appreciate it. Because as a kid, you're just kind of like, oh, it's cool. It looks neat. You know, it's neat. It goes fast. It sounds cool. It's loud. Um, so I think, you know, the the astronomy. And then what ended up happening, too, is I, I was able to, to watch from a, a little cabin up in Tehachapi 
from well over 150 miles away, I watched a, out of Vandenberg Air Force Base where they launch a lot of these Iridium, the next generation of Iridium satellites. Um, they were launching rockets from there. And I, one night I, uh, I was sitting there like, like just trying to take, you know, a photograph of, uh, of the night sky. And I saw this like bright orange glow on the horizon. I'm like, what is that? I'm like, that's weird. And all of a sudden this, this bright fiery dot is like going up off the ground, you know, way out in the distance. And I'm like, oh! I was like, hey, there's a rocket launch going on. I said, I can't believe, you know, and then I just started researching, like, when do we get to see these things? And there's all these websites that give you advanced notice of rocket launches and Vandenberg and all that stuff. And so it just, all of a sudden it was, it was like another thing to go try to photograph. And then it was like, oh, I could do a time lapse of this, or, oh, I could also, you know, get a really nice long zoom, uh, you know, long range zoom lens and see how much detail I can pull out of it. And then it was, so yeah, it, it all kind of sort of part and parcel, but you know, I definitely was a fan of the space shuttle as a kid. I mean, we used to be, I can remember playing in my backyard in Orange County and watching the, the glass on a sliding glass door vibrate as the space shuttle, when it was landing at, um, I believe it was March Air Force Base, is where they used to have it. Is, uh, was it Mojave? I think it was, I think it was March Air Force Base. I could get it wrong, but um, when they would have to do a West Coast landing for the space shuttle, okay. uh, when it enters the atmosphere, it uh, it creates those sonic booms, about three or four of them, um, and they're loud. And, you know, we're, I mean, we're hundreds of miles away, but as that thing, you know, is coming in over the top of us, you just hear the boom, 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 boom. boom. And it just the the sonic boom vibrates all the windows in the glass, and it was like you know I was I was a big big fan of that sort of stuff when I was a little little boy. So here I am in my 40s, kind of re recapturing a lot of that stuff, and now being able to like photograph it or or film it and then share it with you know with a, with another generation of people who might think this is pretty cool stuff. I mean, are there any specific aspects of rocketry? I mean, is it more technical or is it just more of the the aesthetic? I think it's both because when you start looking into the the sort of conundrum of like okay well because now what's happening is it's all about efficiency and now that we've got the privatization of the of this of space essentially mm-hmm. is how do we get like something that's reusable how do we make it more affordable um, it's it's a weird thing to think that it's re it's not an easy thing to get off and get outside of Earth's gravitational pull so that we can get these instruments up there. And it, it it takes a ton of energy to 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 sort of hurl ourselves outside of this gravitational pull. And uh, so I like seeing the different technologies that are being born in terms of the engines, in terms of the fuel that they're using. Um, so there is the technical aspect, but then there is this odd sort of aesthetic quality to it. There's something to me, it, it becomes almost like a spiritual thing to, to witness because you 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 realize that you're seeing this this collective collaborative effort of all these brilliant minds and then very often if we're talking about manned space travel um the the i keep using the term audacity but just like the the fact that we got people men and women that are willing to kind of like risk everything for the ride right you know for the experience to go explore to get beyond and to go learn and there's this human spirit element to it that's also just kind of like i cannot believe we've figured out how to tame that kind of energy so there's a the aesthetic element definitely plays into it uh, because sometimes it can be a beautiful thing. I mean, there's when the Vandenberg launch happened uh, a couple of years ago, um, just after sunset, but it, as it gets up higher, the sun can illuminate the sort of smoke plume and the, ex- the, the exhaust gases of the, uh, the rocket. And that kind of thing it creates this really iridescent, weird reflection in the night sky. It's gorgeous. And again, you just think it's this beautiful 
kind of a thing. And again, that's all in the eye of the beholder because there's a lot of people out there who go, oh, it's the government launching a spy satellite to find out what we're looking at or doing. And you're like, yeah, you could look at it that way too, but I just enjoy the, <laughs> the, the duality of the, man, look at what all these people figured out through STEM, you know, uh, uh, through, through science, technology, engineering, math, all that. Like, like, look at what we've done with our brains and look at what we do with our hearts in terms of like just having the audacity to, to, to give this a shot. You know, take these very expensive, delicate little instruments, strap them on the top of a controlled explosion just so we can go, you know, forecast weather better. Things that actually do really improve our lives. So I, I like all those elements. The whole privatization of space is rather fascinating because it doesn't seem like anybody really knows what they're doing. It's just it's, it's competition for NASA and it's better funded. But I'm not necessarily sure it's more scientific. <laughs> no, and we're getting into some controversial things. There's There's been a couple of little satellites that have gone up for just like, you know, just like giant mirror balls because they want them to be able to be visible during the day. And it's like, now we're getting into like, of course, now, now that's the other spiritual element. It's like, here we go with the narcissism of human beings who want to be the ones to, you know, hey, that's my satellite, you know, mirror ball that's up there that you can see. And it's like, I don't know that we want to start doing that. There's obviously, I mean, they've already talked about advertising in space. It's it's theoretically, you figure the entire space station is a football field in sort of size. And, and it's 250 miles up, but it's bright enough to reflect enough sunlight. So let's get, you know, 10 football fields up there and you have a billboard traveling across the sky at night. You know, it's like now you, now you can literally advertise from space. And there, there's a lot of things that people are thinking about where it's like, yeah, it's a little bit of the Wild West right now, but at least it's inspiring people to get out and do this. I, th- I really do think it's important for us to keep expanding and, and gaining that perspective. I forget, there's some famous quote from a uh, one of the astro- uh, astronauts, I think from the Apollo program, who wanted to come back and say, like, y- y- something about politicians and the, their, their lack of desire at the time when, when space travel stopped being sexy. And I think he was frustrated, and this is so bad, I should know who this individual is, but... Um, Terrible. Yeah, I know it's horrible. And I, I, like, what what voice actor who's an astronomy buff doesn't know this? You bastard. Um, but he came back and he said, it, "When you gain this perspective of looking down on the Earth from that high up, you want to just go back down and grab these politicians and drag them up there and say, look at that, you son of a bitch.' <laughs> that was the guy's the guy's direct quote. Because I mean, every there's a great documentary series on I think it was Nat Geo. I could be wrong. I think it's Nat Geo. Um, called One Strange Rock. It's it's uh, hosted by Will Smith, of all people, but it has, and he does a phenomenal job, and they've got, like, I think, seven astronauts that were all aboard the space station, and they all, none of them come back without some sense of perspective that they just go, there are no borders, there are no, like, we don't, you don't see the lines that we've drawn as, as people in the sand or that kind of thing, and during the day, you would have no clue that human beings are down there, aside from a few different little geographic features like the Great Wall or that kind of thing, they said, but at night, you suddenly see all the lights and you see where, where you know, mankind is sort of spread out. Um, but they said you, you just get this sense of, oh, my gosh, like we're a lot closer to all these other people and communities than we think. Um, but when you see it from, you know, 150, 250 miles up, you just suddenly go, oh, we're all on this giant ball. Like we're we're, we're uh, I, I think it was Mike Massimino. I listened to his audio book, which is phenomenal, um, literally called Spaceman. And uh, he had the commander on board his shuttle mission um, who said, hey, Mike, the minute you get back, like, I want to I want to be the first person you talk to. 
And he says, back from your spacewalk. He was going to go do a spacewalk to fix the Hubble telescope, and the commander has to stay on board the space shuttle, so he wasn't going to get to do a spacewalk, but he wanted to know what it was like. And so he says, Mike, the second you're getting that helmet off, I want to be the first human being you talk to, and I want you to tell me everything that you're thinking of. And Massimino gets back on board the space shuttle after this successful spacewalk and pops the helmet off. Commander asks him, what was it like? Mike goes, he goes, you're like, it's a planet. And the commander's like, what do you mean? He goes, Earth, it's it's a planet. And the guy's laughing. He's like, well, of course it is. What do you mean? He's like, no, we're we're like, we're on a planet in space. Like, like, cause suddenly you're that far out and you can look at Earth and see the moon and see the sun and see other planets in the sky. And suddenly you realize, oh my God, we're suspended out here in this nothing. He's like, we're on a spaceship, man. We're all like, we're on that freaking planet. It's it's a planet, you know. And you, how many of us really ever even get to even contemplate that, you know, let, let alone visibly see it with the naked eye? So that sure that perspective thing, it's a it's an interesting. I forget why I got off on this diatribe. Sorry, I'm blabbing. But hey, Elon Musk put a car in space, so you know, right. That, that, well, that's, hey, that's the most important thing, right? And it's silly, but it's like look at how many people were had that that impacted so many people that day. We all witnessed. Just, again, the audacity. Here's a guy who was literally saying, as long as it gets above the launch pad before it explodes, I'm happy. Because he knew that if they destroyed that launch pad, that was going to set back their whole manned space travel situation, all that stuff. Because that, that particular launch pad is is crucial to their future plans. Not only did it clear the launch pad, it went off. Both, solid, or both side boosters came back, landed up, almost like like picture perfect at the same time and he got his payload out there with the little car and we were able to watch as a as a as a as earthlings you know this little car like tumbling out in space it was just the you know how do you not i know it's kind of silly and it's the arrogance of one billionaire and that kind of thing and it's his car and all that but it's also kind of like hey there's a bunch of kids that i'm sure were inspired that day to kind of you know go man i didn't know you could do that Finally, actually, a, a broader question is, would you ever be interested in space travel yourself? If you suddenly, you know, had a bunch of monster hit movies and decided, you know, I want to I want to take a trip somewhere. <laughs> I would have to it would have to get. And I think Neil deGrasse Tyson has said the same thing. He, he said it would have to get to the point where it's as safe and common as commercial air travel to even consider it. Um, but, yes, it would be an absolute fantasy. Um, there have been a couple things that have come around. That I thought, man, that I might do. I hear about some like. Literally, like, um, balloon company that was just, like, <laughs> literally touting this as, like, bachelor parties in the sky kind of thing where they're like, yeah, it's like imagine you and, like, you know, 12 of your favorite, you know, friends getting together and you just rent this, you rent out this device that, that it's this company that wanted to have essentially like a giant weather balloon, but they lift you up and you go up into the stratosphere or 100,000 something feet kind of thing. I don't know if it's beyond the, the quote unquote Carmen line, but you know, you literally are up where you will see the curvature of the earth and you're up there for like an hour before it slowly descends. And there's a part of me that's like, on one level, I go, yeah, it's just balloon. But then there's still the element of like, it's still, you know, we're best on the ground. And even then, you know, human beings, when we fall down, we crack our skulls open. So it's like travel and speed and atmosphere and all these different things that enter into it. Like, I don't know. I like my I like my hikes and my sitting on a kayak on a lake. And, you know, it's like I don't even do whitewater rafting. So I don't know that space travel is what I would 
necessarily like you know want to go for but but i'm i'm more than happy to watch the people who again like i say these uber humans that are out there to 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 put their lives on the line because to them it's just they've got to have that they need that in their lives i'm like yeah let them go do it in the meantime i'll sit back here and watch it on uh, watch it on tv and with that, we wrap up the first episode of Side Jams. My next guest will be electronic music pioneer Jean-Michel Jarre, who will be discussing painting, science fiction, and movies. I'd like to thank Stephen Montagna for some audio cleanup in this episode, and Gail Flug for designing the logo and avatar. The tunes are by Fox and the Law, which I licensed through AudioSocket. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Please join me for the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.